0: church let the glory of your name be our passion
1: Would be our passion, would be our driving force. Uh, Lord, we thank you for being bringing the gift of salvation to a lost and dying world and creating the church of Jesus Christ. Lord, may we live in strength and power that you provide, Lord, not in, out of our own accord, but, but through your the power of your Holy Spirit. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Mm-hmm.
2: Day of Giving is an event, a program that the church has started uh, several years ago. We have teamed up with Life Point Baptist Church and Selmore Baptist Church here in Ozark to help reach our community with the ultimate goal of telling them about Jesus Christ. We do that by using tools like uh, giving out clothes, uh, cutting hair, giving out food. But the most important thing we do during the day is to tell them the gospel and to have the opportunity to pray with them. Through Day of Giving, They have the opportunity, if you're an Ozark kid, to go over to the school and get a backpack to get them all the school supplies they need to get school ready. We have people that come as far as Arkansas, Springfield, Spokane, Sparta, Highlandville, all kinds of areas that can come in. Anybody, there's no restrictions that we put in for a financial need or anything like that. They don't have to show us anything. They don't have to be registered with a local agency. They just come in and are able to get what they need. Day of Giving got started from a a vision of of a couple in the church.
0: We had taken our first ever mission trip to Houston, Texas, and we got to witness a community outreach that their First Baptist Church in Houston had done. We came back um, with that inspiration.
2: and our first year, we used an organization out of Kansas City. They brought clothes in the first year. And after the first year, we realized there's probably enough resources in our church and our community to be able to supply all the needs. We have so many donations that come in and we are so blessed. Last year, we were even able to give a truckload of supplies to a church in Branson and they began this process there. Day of Giving for next year will begin the day after Day of Giving this year is over.
0: Day of Giving is all year long uh there is a group of amazing women organizing every monday morning from nine to noon come and go
2: a lot of things that that we give out are are practically new we have drives during the year for whatever we can do to get our church involved
0: we um, reach out to the community to show our love to be the hands and feet of jesus god's hands have been in day of giving from the very beginning he's the one that has allowed it to get to the point we're at today and so we just let him do his work and And it just keeps growing.
2: Good morning, church family. Since uh, Jason shot that footage uh, some time ago, things have have drastically changed with COVID and everything else that has gone on. And I am happy to announce that one of the big changes that is is happening is that we are becoming, uh, as of July the 12th, July 13th, we are going to become the, the clothing uh, outlet for Christian County, uh, where least of these did that. That is now going to become a ministry of First Baptist Church, Ozark, and uh, it is amazing how things have transitioned. Uh, least of these is going to a food-only distribution, and we're going to take over their clothing ministry, and uh, so everything has just turned upside down, so what you've seen is Day of Giving, and that will be August the 15th, and we will be you'll be seeing a lot more about that coming up, but but right on the horizon is, um, is our weekly clothing ministry. We are going to be opening up on Mondays and Wednesdays from 8 to 1 for our people in, in Christian County to come and get clothing. And we need volunteers. We need a, uh, a group of people that will commit themselves to be a part of that. Um, tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock, we're going to be offering a training session. Uh, what does it mean? How can I be involved? And all those kinds of things. And so... If, if you have questions, you can come tomorrow at, at, at 10 o'clock in the South Fellowship Hall and we can answer those questions. Also, Nikki and Teresa will be out in the foyer after the service and they can answer those questions as well. But uh, we are so excited about what God is going and is doing in Christian County and how FBCO is going to be able to minister to people in our community now year-round. And so get a part, be a part of that ministry. It's going to be a great time so Nikki and Teresa can answer those questions afterwards.
3: And my own testing. Good deal. Well, life, uh, of course, is about transitions. And uh, we grow older. Right, Mike? We get tired. Uh, We have things that come up that demand our attention. And so I want to say to you today that we have Mike Gallagher and his wife, Miss Mary, here. And if you know Mike, uh, if you've worked around our church or had a special event, uh, you'll realize that Mike is behind a lot of the custodial work and getting tables and chairs set up. And uh, Mike has done this for 20 years at FBC. Well, Mike, Miss Mary, come up here. Miss Mary is going to do a 10-minute speech. Now, I've been having fun picking on her. <laughs> we had an awesome time. Courtney and the gang and Brittany and, uh, and everyone fixed a meal, prepared a meal, got it in for us, and we had a great meal together. Turn around this way so everybody can see you.
2: Can I go right behind you? Yes. Okay. All
3: right. He's making me do
2: this. <laughs>
3: <laughs> so this... A uh, plaque that we have for Mike says it's presented to Mike Gallagher in recognition of your 20 years of faithful service and dedication as our full-time custodian at First Baptist Church of Ozark, Missouri, presented on June 28, 2020. We also uh, present him with a check that's kind of a combination of uh, finishing out and vacation days compiled on that. But we also felt as a personnel committee, we heard that you had a dream of getting you a guitar, playing some music, so this check for $5,000 we pray will be a blessing to you uh, in total because we love you. And Miss Mary, huh? All right. And and we have flowers for you. All right? God is good. And I want to add to that uh, Miss Mary has cancer, and uh, it 's not uh, it's it 's a difficult kind of cancer, and the outlook doesn 't look great, but our God is in control so would you covenant to pray for Miss Mary when you think about her? all right God bless you amen
1: uh, well church family, this is the part of the service where ninety five percent of you sort of zone out because I say. It's time for the connection card. Well, and that's okay for most of you because you don't have anything to write down. That's cool. But today, please, I need everybody's attention, okay? Uh, moving forward, we want to create enough social distance seating that everybody will feel comfortable because uh, next week, our plan is to do away with most of the six-foot spacing, okay? A lot of places are doing that now, and, and that, is our, that is our plan. And it could change, yeah, depending on your response. So if if for any reason, medical, whatever, doesn't matter. We're not going to judge your reason. For any reason, you would rather uh, continue social distance seating, we will allow and have sections available for social distance seating. The way you're going to tell us that is take that connection card, write your name on it. On the back, you'll see at the bottom there's ABCD. Circle an A. That says... A, I don't know, <laughs> attendance, I don't know what it means, but just cir- circle an A, so we know that was your intent to talk about social distance seating, and, and then write a number beside that A. Like if Cammie and I were wanting social distance seating, I'd circle the A and I'd write two, all right? So please uh, do that uh, and, and turn that in in the, uh, in the offering plate as you leave, and we will tally that, and then next week we'll have appropriate areas Uh, and space for social distance seating, all right? So very important you turn those in. We do appreciate that very, very much. Hey, let's sing this great, great hymn that reminds us of the, the foundation that the church of Jesus Christ is built on, on Christ himself. Amen? Thank It is so important what we we believe. A. W. Tozer said this: "What comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us." You could let all you could spend all day letting that sink in. I guarantee you, it is profound. In uh, Al Mohler's book, "The Apostles' Creed," by the way, the Apostles' Creed was formulated based on Scripture in about the first or second century. He says this. All Christians believe more than is contained in the Apostles' Creed, but none can believe less. There are tenets of the Christian faith that we have to hang on to. And if we just let one of them go, it becomes a slippery slope. Amen? And this song reminds us of some of those tenets of the Christian faith. Let's sing it together our father everlasting
0: the all creating one god almighty through your holy spirit conceiving christ the son jesus our savior i believe in god our father Forgiveness is in you. Descended into darkness and rose in glory.
1: this critical verse. It talks about the
0: church. Oh, I believe in life eternal. I believe in the virgin birth. I believe in the saints' communion and in your holy church. I believe in the resurrection. Then Jesus comes again. For I believe here's what he did he became sin who knew no sin that we might become his righteousness he humbled himself
3: Wonderful. The song certainly set the context for the sermon this morning. I will invite you to take your copy of God's Word and look with me in Matthew chapter 16. Today we're going to talk about the identity of Jesus Christ and the promise to the church. There is a quote by G.K. Chesterton that I hope we all agree with. And here's the quote. We do not want a church that will move with the world. We want a church that will move the world. And I want to tell you, we have a Christ that will build his church. And in the midst of all the pessimism in our world about the survival of the church, I want to remind you that the church is the only thing that will survive. So we are thankful for the teaching of God's word. Let's get a running start. I know that I said 13 through 20 of chapter 16. But I need to set the context for you. It really starts in verse 1, but I'll allude to that. But listen, verse 5 of Matthew 16. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Thus, we have a contrast between the way they were thinking and how Jesus responded about the leaven. Which is connected to bread, and I can tell you now Jesus was not talking about gluten, okay? And they began discussing it among themselves, saying the continuous action of the verb tense is they were ongoingly, they were it was an ongoing conversation about the bread. We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, Oh you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Again, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then, aha moment, they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of the bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. This particular lack of understanding that the identity of Christ in the lives of the Pharisees and Sadducees now is going to be juxtapositioned with this incredible confession. Verse 13, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, Others say Elijah, And others Jeremiah, Or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you, second person singular, Peter, the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one (coughs) that he was the Christ. In many ways, the church of the living God... Is not at all well today. She is floundering and flailing around in theological and moral confusion. We hear of the sexual scandals among the Catholic priesthood. But it also happens in Baptist life, right? We hear of denominations that are ordaining, practicing homosexuals. Many church denominations have approved of legislation of same-sex marriage. Nations like Denmark suspended and then reinstated a Lutheran priest who said this before he was dismissed. There is no heavenly father, no eternal life, and no resurrection. Evangelicals now regularly debate the possibility that there is salvation in other religions other than Jesus. That's called pluralism or inclusivism something that the Catholic Church emphatically affirmed at its Vatican II Council in 1962. They emphatically affirmed that you could be saved in other ways other than Jesus Christ. The SBC is now entrenched in the progressiveness of some with social justice issues, with intersectionality. Owen Strykin said, Let the pastors of Christ's church give their people a massive dose of the gospel." And none of the law this Sunday. Intersectionality brings anxiety. It brings anger, division, despair, discouragement, and alienation. The gospel brings rest and peace and unity and hope and refreshment and love in Christ Jesus. Now some of you may say, Pastor, with all of that, are you pessimistic about the survival of the church? And I will tell you, not at all. In our text of Scripture, we learn that the founder of the church is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to tell you today that this message is so essential for us in our day to hear. The methods that we have as a church are things that we need to get from the text. A.W. Tozer said, a local church will only be as great as its conception of God. Today, I want you to see how great our God is. Today, I want you to understand what the church is supposed to be. So, we're going to see the very first mention in the Bible, in the New Testament, of the church. Isn't it important, the first time it's mentioned, to find out what's around it? Why that word "ecclesia" is mentioned in the Bible, and it refers to an assembly of Christ followers. So, Jesus' words, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. In other words, he's going to give... A juxtaposition. They're contrasting. Uh, The Pharisees and Sadducees, you understand, are not for Christ at all. If you've read the Bible, they do not accept his identity as the Messiah. They don't accept him as God in the flesh. But these disciples have this ongoing conversation about bread. Now, Quarles, who wrote a phenomenal commentary Uh, that's laced with the understanding of the Greek language, comes back and says, what's really going on is the disciples talking about this bread is akin to what the Pharisees were doing in verse 1. They were seeking a sign. And how many times did Jesus say, the only sign I'm going to give you is the sign of Jonah? Just as he was in the belly of the earth three days and three nights, so shall the Son of Man be, which is indicating his death and resurrection. So Quarles notes that the disciples may have been in a dangerous position of seeking another sign because it's fresh in their mind that Jesus had fed 4,000 and 5,000, and it would have been really easy for them to say, Wow, just do it again. Give us another one. And that's a possibility. But here's the deal Jesus is thinking about the malignancy of the Pharisees and Sadducees and their teaching. And the disciples are thinking about the fact they've forgotten food. Don't you think Jesus is certainly aware of their condition before him? And here's what he says to them, ye men of little faith. Now, don't you think he would have said, you men of terrible intellectual acumen? I mean, you guys are not thinking. Why does he say faith? I mean, w- why would Jesus say this? The problem seems to be the confusion of what Jesus was really talking about. It seems to be an intelligent issue. Yet, faith is what, folks, gives perception. It is faith that gives you insight. Where there is little perception and insight, there is little faith. Faith is not a matter of IQ. And all of you are saying with the pastor, amen. Amen. It's not a matter of IQ. Faith is a humble confidence in the character of our God and what he says. It's confidence in the fact that God will keep his word. Faith opens a window, per se, into reality. Now, do we deal with Christians that should know better on a variety of issues? I think this text kind of helps us on this, right? Because in the church, sometimes we read Facebook posts and we're like cringing. You're from 1st Baptist Ozark, and you said this? Are there things that we see and we, we think about statements that are made by people? And here's the problem we have. We assume, since they profess to be Christians, that they should be able to connect the dots. They should see the implications of what it means to believe the Bible and what the Bible teaches. But that's not true, Okay. Because even the disciples had a lack of perception. They did not see it the way it should be seen. So the lack of understanding that we see among churches today simply could be their lack of understanding is grounded in their lack of faith. Now, do y'all think Jesus had a problem feeding 12 disciples? Folks, if he would have spoken the word, the boat would have sunk. Full of bread. This is not the issue here. Jesus is committed to his disciples' Thinking perceiving, having insight. Don't be afraid, Baptists, to think and use your mind and and to delve into what the Bible has to say to us. So the implication here is finally the disciples, oh, that's right. He was simply talking about, we were talking about bread. God can give that kind of bread in a moment, but we finally get it. We actually see what's going on. You do realize that the Pharisees and Sadducees didn't believe the same things. It's kind of like come together for mob violence, right? Do we not see this in our world today? The Pharisees and Sadducees were both part of the Sanhedrin, but they hated each other in many ways. Why? Because the Sadducees were the liberals of the day. They literally did not believe in anything. No afterlife, no resurrection, but the Pharisees were the conservatives. You remember when Paul was preaching in the book of Acts, and he knows this, and he says, Oh, what about the resurrection? And it causes a fight between the Sadducees and Pharisees. You know why? Well, because Paul knew it would. But second, they didn't believe the same things. But what did they come together in on this day? What do they believe? What, do they, what is their teaching? What is this leaven that permeates and sours and, and causes contamination? What is it? It's their common belief Of their rejection of the Son of God. They rejected Jesus Christ and this is what brings them together. They rejected the very purpose of God. So just when we are about to throw up our hands with the disciples lack of perception, something great happens in verse 13. The Pharisees and Sadducees reject the identity of Christ, but Peter nails it. He doesn't just get it right, he gets it perfectly right. So, Matthew identifies that there's been a transition. They've gone to the region of Caesarea Philippi. That's 25 miles north of Galilee. It was named after Philip of Macedon. How? For himself and after Caesar. So, at this point, Jesus introduces a question regarding his identity and how important that is for the church. Are y'all tracking with me? All right, here we go. Jesus' identity as Messiah... And Son of God, the Son of God, is the church's essential confession. Now, it's time for a religious poll of sorts. You ever have one of these? Have you filled out an election poll lately? What's your view of this? What your view, what's your view of that? But we see this all the time. Uh, we see questions like, how many people believe in the existence of God? How many people pray? How many people are church members that actually go to church? Right? Right? We get these polls all the time. But Jesus says, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, is? In other words, what's the popular opinion of me out there on the street regarding my identity? Now think about the disciples' world. They were, they were not with Jesus at every step of the way. They went home. They had chores. They had vocation life. And you know full well they heard these things. There's no shortage of answers. They certainly heard the word on the street regarding who people thought Jesus was. Notice first John the Baptist. This, by the way, was Herod's opinion. In Matthew 14, he thinks that Jesus is John the Baptist that has come back from the dead. That's what his view is. So it certainly would be a popular religious opinion. Others say Elijah. Why Elijah? The one you should think about more with Elijah would be who? John the Baptist because Matthew uh, Malachi 4 says he will come in the spirit of Elijah. But that just goes to show us that the popular religious opinion is usually wrong. Right? That was something. Elijah. But we could also think about the fact that Jesus performed miracles that were in profound continuity with Elijah such as the raising of the widow's daughter, which Jesus did in concert continuity in the Old Testament. So, others say Jeremiah. What do you know about Jeremiah? Well, he wasn't the religious leader's best friend, was he? He confronted them in their apostasy, in their hypocrisy. He was ruthlessly uh, outspoken against the religious leaders of the day. He also preached judgment to come to the nation of Israel, and he also preached emphatically against the temple itself. So there's John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah. What about the other prophets? And this is just the uncommitted group on the street. They would just say, well, thinking about this Jesus guy, maybe he's, he's something like a prophet, we may say. So we have all these religious opinions floating around. Now, folks, I want to ask you a question. Has anything changed in the U.S. about religious opinions regarding who Christ is? Do you find it interesting that everybody has a religious opinion? You can speak with people who have never read the Bible, who've been in Sunday school, or read religious books, or haven't ever read a religious book, haven't been to Sunday school. For that matter, they've never entertained a religious spiritual thought in their entire life. But if you ask them about religion, they've got an opinion. I mean, I can even ask Baptists in this church. It's happened. What do you think the Bible says about this subject? What? Have no idea. Why? Because you don't pick up the Bible. It's a sad thing when we want to give a religious opinion, but we do not know what the Bible says. It's better, you're better off not to give an opinion if you don't know what the Bible has to say. But here's the deal. They've got opinions about God. They've got opinions about salvation, about Bible, about truth, etc. Now, check this out. Who do you... Say that I am. He brings it away from the word on the street and he makes it in your face, personal, right up front. Is this not one of the greatest questions that we find in the Gospels? It's pointed. It's right in their faces. You can't get more personal. You can't get more applicable. You can't get more relevant than who do you say that I am? And guess who answers first? Yes, You know, the Scripture says that we need to be slow to anger, slow to speak. But you know Peter, quick to anger and quick to speak, right? But here is an awesome time when he makes this confession of faith that you are the Christ. Just look at it on the page. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And the church should respond by saying, amen. You nailed it. You got it right. So when he says this, you are the Christ. You understand that this would be the culmination of everything taught in the, New, in the New Testament regarding the long-awaited Messiah. Christ would be anointed one, translated the Messiah. So everything that had been promised throughout the entirety of the Old Testament finds its fountainhead in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus consistently referred to himself as who? His favorite designation title was Son of Man. Do you know where that comes from? If you don't, I'm going to go back and start at Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. Instead of, in a few weeks, I'm going to go back to Daniel. But here's the deal. We know that the first time Son of Man is used, it's used in Daniel 7, 13 through 14. So it's couched in apocalyptic literature. So there's some ambiguity. There's some mystery surrounding the Son of Man that's just thrown out there in the book of Daniel. But Peter... Steps forward and says, let me correct this. He doesn't think this. But he's giving us exactly who Daniel was speaking of when he says, you are the Christ. So, Jesus is the Christ. God's Messiah. You are the long-awaited prophet, priest, and king. You're the promised anointed one who would come and deliver his people. And the definite article highlights that Jesus is the one and only Messiah. One and only. Only, you are the Christ, right? And then he says, you are the Son of God. This description appears only here in Matthew. And what is he contrasting? Well, he's in Caesarea Philippi. They've got gods on every corner. Small gs on the end, right? And against that backdrop, he says, Jesus, the Son of God, is the true God with the dead idol gods in contrast. They're idols and they're dead, but there's only one true and living God. And his name is the Son of God, right? In three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So think about the magnitude of Peter saying that you are God in the flesh. It speaks of his deity. It's an affirmation. What an enormous significance. Now, how did Peter get this information? Did Peter analyze the data? Did Peter have some kind of encounter before where Jesus said this to him? Does Jesus say at this point, Peter, you've been unable to perceive. But all of a sudden, now you finally got it. Is this what he said? No, he says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Notice the play on words. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. You are Peter. You are a son of Jonah. Blessed you are Simon, son of Jonah. You are an ordinary human being. (laughs) I am the son of God. You are an ordinary son of some man, son of Jonah on the face of the earth. You're an ordinary man, but you are now in a state of eternal happiness, and it's granted to you by the gift of God that has been revealed to you. Here's why. Because flesh and blood cannot reveal this to you. Folks, do y'all feel the magnitude of Christ saying this? When we are so uh, pragmatic in our days to make our church into what we want it to be and we think we can do everything by flesh and blood, do you understand something? That's impossible. You can't do this with human solutions. You can't do any church, real church life unless Jesus Christ is the identity of the one who is doing everything and it is the father working through the son to accomplish his divine purpose. Strike out any merit for Peter. Right? Uh, No mere mortal being could ever arrive at this particular understanding on their own. That Jesus is the Christ. The son of the living God. It wasn't Peter's intelligence. Uh, Where did he get it? Again, if his intelligence looked back at what he was just arguing about. Where's the bread? I mean, we don't have any bread, so it's not his intelligence. This is not a human revelation to you about who I am. It's not flesh and blood. The reason you know who I am and you answer correctly is because my Father in heaven revealed this to you. Wow. The only way you can say this confession, and that's true for you and me, That you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And actually believe it in your heart where it counts. It's only because it's been revealed to you by the Father. There's no other way. The Father drew Peter to Jesus, opened his eyes that he might see who he truly is. That's exactly the way I was saved when I was nine years of age. I was a nine-year-old little boy. And God did the same thing in my heart and mind. And has he done the same thing for you? It's a question we all have to answer. Here's the fact. Jesus attributes Peter's knowledge of his identity to the sovereign grace of God. Flesh and blood cannot give you this understanding. Only my Father who is in heaven can reveal this to you. Let me show you Matthew 11. I could have gone numerous places, but since we're in the book of Matthew, just turn left. In your copy of the scripture, look down in verse 25 of chapter 11. And then he says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Do you understand what an incredible turning point this is with Peter's confession? It's a turning point for the lives of the disciples. It's a turning point for all of world history. That you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I think some of you will sit here today, and I I hope it's true, but I can't take this for granted When you're asked, who do you say that the Son of God is? What do you say? When you're asked, who is Jesus' identity? Well, he was a good teacher. Well, Mormons believe that. Jehovah Witnesses believe that. Or he is this. Or he is that. Any answer that comes from flesh and blood origin is not a saving answer. Are y'all listening? When the Father reveals the answer to you, it is a saving answer. When the Father reveals the identity of the Son, it is a saving answer. Folks, this has to be our essential confession at this church. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I don't have rabbits to pull out of a hat. If the Word of God and the attractiveness of Jesus is not enough for you, then I don't have anything else to do. Are y'all listening? I mean, we're, we're, we put things out like other attractions have to be paramount and first and methods and methodologies. No, folks, all the church needs is Jesus. We need this essential confession. And you need it. Listen to me. I'm not a prophet or son of a prophet in that sense. I'm not predicting the future. But I'm telling you something, folks. It's going to get rough in the United States of America. Much worse than you see now. And the very first thing they're going to try to do is move us away from our essential confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Because it's discriminatory to tell other people that you can't get to heaven other than through Christ. Right? We're going to to go down. You think it's bad to pull down a statue of Jesus. You just wait. It's going to get progressively worse. So I'm trying to undergird this church to tell you, don't move away from the essential confession that Jesus Christ is the living God and the Son of God. And the only way of salvation. Right? Okay. That's the church's confession. But what about the church's founder? Notice verse 17. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I found something interesting the other day. I I browsed through. Do you know how much ink has been spilled between verses 17 and 20 about understanding this text? Every bit of uh, papal authority, the Roman Catholic Church comes from those verses. Its institution, what they believe, which is heretical, which is not in the Bible. Those things come from this. I read an excerpt that said there was a work that was written on this text. It's called an exegesis of Matthew 16, 17 through 20. And listen, here's where it focused. From 1781 to 1965. Can you imagine that much work, that many theories about what's going on? But look, here's what the text says. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not Prevail against it. I will give you, second person singular, the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, can I give you something that's very obvious? And we miss this sometimes. Peter says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus turns around in a declaration and says, You are Peter, and upon this rock. Now, is that pretty straightforward? You are Christ, the son of the living God, turns right around and says, You are Peter, and upon this rock I'll build my church. Peter makes a stunning confession, and then the Lord makes a stunning declaration. Now, again, Roman Catholics took this text to argue what's called the primacy of Peter. Peter is the first pope in their understanding. It's also used for their belief in papal infallibility. Why? Because Peter got it right. He has to be infallible, even though it's not Peter's intellect that gave it to him. Right? This was given to him by God himself, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. But they think from this that Peter is infallible. And it also uses, is used to support apostolic succession. What does that mean? After Peter, you have a long successive issue of bishops in Rome called popes. And they now speak authoritatively for Christ on the earth. Well, here's the deal. Those, those ideas are not in this text. Period. Those ideas are not in any text of the Bible. The ideas are actually contrary to the Bible. So the next phrase is remarkable. The grammar in English would be like this, mark my words. So it's more than a declaration to say what is merely true. I say to you, Peter, mark my words, it's an announcement of the effects of the identity of Cephas. In other words, because of that confession, because he nails it, because he gets it right, there's a new identity given to his position. It's a declaration of more than what's merely true. It's an announcement that affects a new identity for Peter. What does Jesus mean by this rock? Grammatically, uh, upon this rock, Petras, I will build my church. There's the play on words, per se, of Petras versus Petra. In other words, a masculine noun for rock versus a feminine noun for a larger rock. And this has been argued and argued and argued. Is it Peter? I call you Peter and upon Peter, this rock, I will build my church. Is it Peter's confession? Is it Jesus? Is it revealed truth that is the confession? Is it Peter as a representative for all the other apostles? Well, To to cut the chase for a grammatical lesson, let me just remind you that the grammar suggests that Peter is, in fact, called a foundation in this verse. It is very, very clear in my opinion. And again, I don't want to confuse you grammatically. uh, But here's the deal. If the Catholics would not have terribly eisegeted this text, you wouldn't have a problem hearing that Peter's going to be a foundation. That's common sense. Who's going to preach the first sermon on the day of Pentecost? Right? It's common sense. So here's the deal. Some see a play on words with a feminine noun versus a, massive, uh, versus a small stone masculine. But scholars remind us that Jesus probably said this in Aramaic. And if he did, he used the simple word kepa to explain Peter. So upon uh, you are kepa and upon this kepa I will build my church. More than likely that is true. Why? Because in New Testament Greek, the word for a small stone is lithos. Wouldn't it have been very easy for him just to put lithos in there if he was speaking of a small stone? So although Peter is addressed here, in my opinion, as the beginning foundation of the church, it no in no way undermines the supremacy of Jesus Christ, the Lord, right? Let me show you Ephesians chapter 3. So I would see Peter as maybe first among equals because he is going to bring the gospel first. The first one to ever preach a Christian gospel. But let me show you what it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. Turn fast. The Bible says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Who's the founder? Say it. It's Jesus Christ. But there is a foundation of apostles and prophets that are going to be uh, many in a successive order of guys who are going to come and preach the gospel. Peter's only going to be on the scene for about 12 chapters, and he's not even mentioned again. And then Paul's going to come on the scene, and they're going to be preaching the, the gospel. So, on the foundation of such men, he built his church. Peter is an apostolic representative. He speaks up. He's the point man, but he's not a pope. This text is not at all about a supreme pope, it's about a sovereign savior. It's not about a necessary pope, it's about a non-negotiable declaration. It's not about the infallibility of a pope, it's about the invincibility of the church and the mission that God is giving. Folks, only with the message do we have Christ's authority to tell people about the gospel. Only with the authority of Jesus. All authority has been given to me now, make disciples. As you're going, make disciples. Who gives the authority? It's only the authority of Jesus that gives us this ability to share the gospel. And we're not talking about building with gold and stone, are we? It's pretty amazing. Uh, Peter is as fallible as you can get. Unless you don't believe this, keep reading. Peter's going to come back and say to Jesus, Far be it, you're not going to suffer and die in Jerusalem. And what does Jesus call him? Satan, get behind me, Satan, right? That's not a good way to treat the first pope, right? I mean, think about it. He tells him, get behind me. So listen, don't you find it amazing that God sees forth the desire to take the gospel to the end? He could just speak the word and it'd be done. But he uses instrumentality of humans and our frailty to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And then he says this. How's it going to take place? I will give you, second person singular. Does that not add to the understanding that the rock is Peter? He turns right around and says, I give to you, right? I give to you the foundation beginning of the preaching of the gospel, right? So, it's not exclusively Peter. It's other apostles. It's prophets, right? But he gives the keys to his disciples and his church. And the keys represent the authority and the power to exclude or allow entrance into the kingdom. However, Jesus is quite clear where the ultimate authority resides. Now, what takes place on earth, folks, has its origin in heaven. This is not, uh, the initiative is God's, not man's. Heaven, not earth. And how do you know that? Because when you read the Bible, of course, it's written in Greek. You have it in English, okay? But when you get down to this particular verse, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And this particular understanding of the the Greek text is a future paraphrastic verb. In other words, if you've got a copy of the NAS, New American Standard, it nails it. It actually tells you exactly... What it is. Whatever you bind on earth will have already been bound in heaven, and what you loose on earth shall have already been bound or loosed in heaven. So, in the exercising of the kingdom and the keys of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, don't you see that it's a sovereign initiative? And I know I get hit by that. Because I'm a preacher who preaches that God is in control and He initiates salvation. I'm okay with that. But make sure you study the language before you jump on me. Okay? It cannot mean anything else. In other words, what, what is accomplished on earth has already been accomplished in heaven. It is heaven's initiative. I mean, you've already heard it. You can't get revealed truth unless the Father gives it to you. Right? And so that's the understanding of the verb. Peter and the other disciples and we... Open the kingdom to many. But we also shut the kingdom to many. Right? When they, don't, when they reject the gospel of Jesus Christ, the kingdom is shut. So whatever is loosed on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Whatever is bound on earth will have already been bound in heaven. It originates there. It is God who has the authority over us. Not us. It is God who ultimately determines the destiny of any soul. Not us. God determines that. If God who determines... But we've got a mandate to declare and confess the gospel. We've got a mandate to do it. What happens when Peter preaches the first sermon at Pentecost? you got 5, 000, you got 3,000 that are saved. Whoo, opening, right? Whatever's loose. you got 5,000 saved. When you get to chapter 5, there's some things that are bound. How about church discipline? Ananias and Sapphira, who's the point man? Peter? Peter says, Why would you want to lie to the Holy Spirit of God? Keep back part of it and say you gave it all. You lied and they died. There's some things that are pretty much bound, right? And then you see the gospel going to the ends of the earth, but you see people rejecting it. You see their gnashing of their teeth. And so there's this loosing and this binding that we see. What Peter and the apostles and we do by welcoming people into the kingdom of God who confess Christ we exclude people who reject, or it's excluding people who reject Him. But it is bringing those people in who accept Him. And here's the thing you've got to understand. It's not up to our human ability to do it. Right? We've got to trust God that He is absolutely in control. It's simply the outworking of a plan that's laid up in the confines of heaven. That's what the scripture tells us. A.W. Tozer said, It's scarcely possible in most places to get anyone to attend a meeting where the only attraction is God. Folks, what's our attraction here at FBCO? What is our attraction? Are y'all listening? I mean, son, if we bring Garth Brooks up here, everybody will come. You see that on TV last night outside concert? You know, if we, I mean, people will show up. For, But what if you know in the morning that the attraction at this church is only God? I mean, it's only Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, when I preach a sermon, if you leave thinking about me, you missed it. I mean, the reason we labor in the Word is so you think about Jesus. All right, we're running out of time, right? It's already late. Last one. Jesus promises that the church cannot be destroyed and will be victorious. Are you putting this together? We have an essential confession. We can't move away from it, right? It is Jesus alone that will build his church. But it's also a victorious church. And there are some erroneous views about this. How many of you heard this? Well, the gates of hell are for defense. So the Lord is telling us just to take off toward the gates of hell. So really, gates are, are used for defense to keep people out. But in actuality, it says that the gates of hell will not prevail against us. So that must mean the church is offensive That we're on the offense and we're storming the gates of hell. Well, they forgot to read the Old Testament, right? Because what do we know about the gates of Hades shall not prevail? Well, it's an Old Testament description of death. It's a Jewish idiom for the powers of death. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm going to build my church and it will never die. Nothing will stop it. It will be victorious. The powers of death will never overcome my church. Now, did death destroy our Messiah? Did it? No. Death could not hold him. And it's not going to stop the church of the living God either. The church will not be extinguished. Now it rises through its afflictions. As J.C. Ryle once said, the church is an anvil that has broken many a hammer in this world and it will break many a hammer still. I'm telling you, folks, if the U.S. stands up against the church, it'll get hammered. It's going to get hammered Eventually. The church will win. Now, why does Jesus say this in verse 20? Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Now, is that what we're supposed to do today? Don't tell anybody he's the Christ. Well, just think about it. Although it had been revealed to Peter by divine origin that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, one thing Peter did not yet understand was the suffering and death and resurrection of Christ. So, without understanding that, Proclamation should not go out. In other words, you've got to understand the entire gospel, right? And so for Peter and for all the other disciples, Peter's going to turn right around and say, Huh, death in Jerusalem? No way. He didn't have the the full understanding for gospel proclamation. So, Jesus was not promoting a political figure in himself. He was promoting a savior, right? That was going to touch the ends of the world. So here's a serious question. I cannot assume just because we sit in this building together that we all have the same answer. But here's the deal. Here's the question. Who do you say that the Son of God is? Who do you say that Jesus is? It's a serious question. Can you say that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God? If you can't say that in the seat of who you are, ever how you want to say that, your heart, Kardea in the Greek, Seat of the emotions, what makes you who you are. If you can't say that, you need to pray to Almighty God that He will open your heart up so that you can understand who His Son is. The answer, check this out, the answer to that question is eternal life. Father, thank You for Your Word. God, help us at this church to keep the essential confession that You are Christ, the Son of the living God. That we don't have the power to build your church. You said, I will build my church. And oh Lord God, thank you for the victory that the church has today. All because of your promise in your word that death itself will not stop the church. Lord, help us. Lord, help us in a day when things are fuzzy. When churches are succumbing to secular humanism at every turn. God, help us to stick to the Bible. God, do not let the world take the Bible out of our hands. God, help us. And if there's someone under the sound of my voice that's lost, let them understand that the identity of who Jesus Christ is is a matter of eternal life. Father, reveal it to your people today. Reveal the identity of your Son. And what welds that together? Our need... With the sufficiency of Jesus, it's called faith. It's the faith that you work in us, that we respond with. We believe into the gospel. We go from a place of unbelief to a place of belief in the person and work of Jesus Christ. God help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, God bless you. Listen, seriously, I know things are different. And I want to do a call to invitation to make you come to this altar. Uh, would not make you, ask you to come to the altar and pray for lost people. I get that, but we're still in that restrictive mode, okay, in our, in our auditorium. But here's the deal. Would you please mark that bullet, mark that card? Because it hits pastors hard, and we don't always know the right thing to do. I wish the Lord would reveal to me, this is what I want you to do. But folks, I know coronavirus cases are spiking again. The, this thing is real. So we don't want to do anything. I know we shot out an email, James did, but look. Uh, I'm the preacher, so I can change my mind, right? <laughs> no, seriously, we, we want to do things right. So um, I'm already struggling with coming back with one service on the 5th. We need you to sign, uh, dot that card. We need to study more this week, uh, be looking for emails. And it may be that we need to continue through July with social distancing. And uh, Josh over at Selmore this morning announced they will not do Sunday school in July. And they were going to do it starting on the 5th. But they've, they're not going to do it now. So pray for me, okay? Pray that we make the right decision. And uh, we, uh, we'll get back together as a congregation as soon as we possibly can, meaning not a 9 and 11 and Sunday school, okay? Y'all can walk in my shoes this week if you want to. You can call me and say, Preacher, here's the decision you ought to make. No. God bless each one of you.
1: Amen. Well, so with that in mind, let's continue to let the uh, ushers lead us out. One row at a time, okay. And and let's sing this uh great verse one more time about the church victorious. Okay? And
0: mid toil and tribulation and to